Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, after snubbing the First Nations invitations on National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, Prime Minister Trudeau visited Kamloops for the first time yesterday. Was his trip enough to make up for the Tofino fiasco? We're also one step closer to the end of the pandemic as Pfizer has officially asked Health Canada to approve the first COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11. Dr. Jim Kellner, a member of the Federal COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, will join us to talk about that. And Ontario Premier Doug Ford is receiving major criticism about his racist and xenophobic comments he made yesterday while talking about a worker shortage. Many are calling on him to apologize for his remarks. Willie, it's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally made the trip uh, to Kamloops yesterday. Uh, for a meeting and, uh, well, a makeup meeting, I suppose, basically, because he was not there for Truth and Reconciliation Day and uh, met with a mixed reaction. I think there was a, a, a sense of optimism that was going on there. Uh, Tacumlop's chief, uh, Roseanne Casimir, uh, shared the reaction they had when learning that Prime Minister Trudeau took vacation on that first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. That was back on September 30th. Uh, he's apologized for it. Now, she made the comments yesterday afternoon when the Prime Minister was just of an arm's reach away, and this is what she had to say. Two letters of invitations were sent to his office to participate in our event. For us, it was to show his commitment to rectifying the historical wrongs of residential school and to grieve with our residential school survivors, whether in person or by a virtual pre-recorded greeting and message for all of us here. Instead, in the middle of truth-telling, cultural grounding and sharing that unfolded as part of the commemoration of the very first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, in this arbor, a journalist quietly informed us that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was on vacation in Tofino. The shock, anger, and sorrow and disbelief was palpable in our community, and it rippled throughout the world, to say the least. Today is about making some positive steps forward and rectifying a mistake. We wanted to ensure that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau visited what we refer to as a sacred site, the unmarked burial sites of the confirmed missing children from the Kamloops Indian Residential School. That's uh, Chief uh, Roseanne Casimir with her comments uh, with the Prime Minister sitting uh, right beside her yesterday uh, talking about the, well, the missed meeting with Truth and Reconciliation. The question, of course, is uh, did the meeting do any good at all yesterday? Did it uh, build a bridge that uh, had been torn down because of his uh, vacation in Tofino instead? Joining us to talk about this is Liam Misdane Goldman, who is a uh, settler scholar and assistant professor of political science at Brock University. Uh, professor, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, obvious question here. Uh, did the Prime Minister's visit yesterday heal some of the wounds that were opened on September 30th? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Um, it's hard to say if it healed anything. I think it was mostly an exercise in rebuilding any kind of relationship at this point. His behavior on September 30th was pretty egregious. And so there's a lot of work still to be done. And if anything, I think you might say it's a good first step that shouldn't have had to be taken. I, was, I watch body language, not just what's said, but the, the, the attitude that people have. And I got the sense yesterday uh, that, uh, that the First Nations, including uh, Chief Casimir, were cordial to the Prime Minister. 
but not welcoming with open arms. It was, uh, and, and the message was pretty clear here. You know, we've had enough words. Let's have some action now. Yeah, honestly, that's exactly the message that was spoken as well. Um, a number of the other chiefs that were there, um, along with uh, Kukpi Kashmir, they all had the same thing to say. It's wonderful for you to show up when it's a PR exercise. Uh, we want you to be here. We want to keep hearing that you're involved. But what is even more important to us is that you actually show that by your actions. And I think that that's what's really left for the Trudeau government to start doing, um, which is somewhat surprising nearly seven years in. Well, yeah, and, and I know we're going to start, I guess, this conversation based on what happened or what didn't happen really on September 30th. But I think your point's well taken. Uh, the consternation that a lot of people are feeling goes all the way back seven years to when the Truth and Reconciliation Report came out and basically sat in somebody's bottom drawer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I know that the government likes to tout that it's making progress or has started or completed almost 80% of the TRC recommendations that came their way. But the problem is that a lot of those have been stalled for quite a while. And so when you start looking at actual analyses of what's actually been done, what's actually been completed, um, like those by the Yellowhead Institute out of Axe University, you start seeing that the vast majority of what has been done has not been done by this government, but it's been done by organizations like um, arts councils, like universities, like um, all kinds of other organizations as well, like even some church groups. And the actual action by the government has been very little. Let, let's talk about that and, and the commitment, or, or as some people would suggest, a lack of commitment uh, yesterday. Uh, there are things that could have been said, probably should have been said, uh, to try to, to assuage some of those concerns. I know they talked about, you know, and, and I know the Chief Kashmir talked about a peaceful resolution for past and, and current harms uh, to bring honor and dignity back to, to the, the Indigenous peoples. Uh, should there have been a commitment from the Prime Minister at that stage? I mean, there were a number of things they were talking about doing here, uh, including, of course, a full and full, full disclosure about uh, the records that were kept by both the federal government and the Catholic Church. I know that uh, both entities have talked about doing something about that. Uh, the Catholic bishops here in Canada have formally apologized, but at the same time, uh, one of the, uh, I thought, themes of, of a number of the speakers yesterday was we need to bring those children home one way or another. We need to identify them and bring them home, and there was uh, nothing in the way of a federal government commitment to say, okay, we're going to work with you to make that happen ASAP. Honestly, that was one of the most surprising things for me. And I think you're absolutely right there in terms of the lack of commitment. What was even more shocking in some ways is how poorly prepared the prime minister seemed to be for the questions that actually came his way. You mentioned the records um, held not only by, at this point, especially the Catholic Church, but also the federal government. One of the things that Prime Minister Trudeau said was that the government had released all documents. And that's just flat out not true. And so if that is the kind of action that he is talking about bringing, then there's quite a bit more that needs to be done. And honestly, the asks, especially from Tecumloops Nation, were quite straightforward. Um, they wanted additional supports for children. That's something that um, advocates like uh, Cindy Blackstock have been working for years to have the government put in place, and the government is still continuing to fight them in court over. They asked for funding for a healing center for those affected by the intergenerational trauma of residential school use. And they asked for, quite frankly, just money for further surveys of the ground. None of those were guaranteed by the government. None of those seemed to be something that the government were going to commit to. 
And it really raises the question of what the purpose of yesterday was, if not just a PR exercise then. I mean, I can't get inside the heads of the people that are around the prime minister and his inner circle here, but when the, this trip was planned, uh, my, my sense was they had to have some idea of what was, well, they certainly knew what the concerns were, but they also knew what some of the requests and some of the asks were going to be, like the healing center uh, and the records and things of this nature. I, I would have thought that the prudent thing to do was, okay, we have to commit to at least one of those things. The, the one that jumped to mind, of course, because it got mentioned so often, was the, was the, the funding for the healing center uh, for this community. It's been brought forward a number of times. Uh, you know, if, if they're trying to heal and, and they're trying to build these bridges once again, a commitment yesterday to say, you know what, here's the money. Uh, I mean, you know, politicians love to have the photo op with the check and say, this is going to happen. Uh, yesterday would have been an ideal opportunity for that. And I think it was an opportunity lost for the federal government. I would absolutely agree with that. And one of the things that is perhaps the most surprising to me is how unprepared the government was and the prime minister especially. Like you said, these aren't new asks. These aren't things that have just come up in the last couple of days. These were things that they should have foreseen and that there was no real commitment. Uh, like you said, politicians love to hand out checks and love to have that kind of a press conference. Um, but honestly, the hopes and prayers and the continued learning and continued commitment just isn't enough without something concrete actually being done. Well, the only commitment that he seemed to make uh, was to permanently lower Canada's flags to half-mast on National Truth and Reconciliation Day every September 30th. Uh, a nice gesture, but it's it's not addressing the major problems here. Exactly. There are a number of problems, not only for Tecumloops, but across the country. And lowering the flags is important. Um, it's an important symbol, but it's not nearly what I think people should have been expecting. Well, we should have been expecting a lot more from the federal government. And uh, uh, some of the, as you say, some of the prime minister's comments, I mean, I could just see some of the, the, the people that were there, uh, some of the, uh, the the leaders that were there. Uh, they weren't rolling their eyes, but I mean, they had this look on their face like, here we go again, uh, suggesting that, uh, well, the quote from the prime minister here said, there's no question the federal government will compensate survivors. Uh, well, they're still fighting them in court. I mean, I know the decision came down, but I mean, they haven't done anything about this. And, and now they're simply saying who qualifies and maybe the money that was, you know, that was suggested is not is, is too much for, for individuals and things of this nature. Uh, the, 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 that willingness to simply say, you know what, let's wipe the slate clean and let's start over and make this right. Uh, didn't seem to be there. And it's not there on a daily basis. And it's not just this government. This has been going on for years now. Yeah, and this is part of the issue, is that reconciliation is not something that can just kind of be done immediately. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. It's going to take a long time, and it's going to take continued learning by a lot of people. The prime minister should not be that person right now. It's been years, and frankly, it, that time, that work, it takes a lot of ramp up, and we haven't seen that either. Um, these kinds of funding announcements, the ones that we've been talking about are the kind of lowest hanging fruit in many ways and the kind of uh, announcement that you would get from a prime minister saying we're no longer going to fight indigenous children in court. We're no longer we're going to adequately fund um, child welfare services is not something that is difficult to do and that they're unwilling to do so, I think, tells you quite a bit about what we should expect from this government going forward. In, in your discussions and, and your work uh, you know, on this on this file, 
how frustrating are, are frustrated rather indigenous people i mean even after september 30th and i think the prime minister actually alluded to this yesterday uh suggesting that the the chief could have actually turned it here back on the government but it was her it was the chief that actually reached out and said please come the invitation it's it's always it's seemingly the indigenous people that are trying to take the first step here uh and and i think what they're looking for and i think what many of them asked for yesterday was we're looking for the federal government to take the lead here to be to be proactive instead of reactive yeah i think that's absolutely correct the willingness of indigenous peoples across the country to welcome to teach to do all of the labor of reconciliation so far has been frankly the only reason that we've really moved forward at this point and honestly, it's time for us as settlers, um, certainly me as a settler and all of us across the country, to step up and start taking that work on. Um, so far, it has been put upon those who are already facing those kinds of intergenerational traumas and already facing the kinds of uh, impacts from the federal government that us as settlers don't have to. And honestly, the work is now to be done on our side. And there is quite a bit there to be done. We have very clear roadmaps. And um, that graciousness and that willingness to consistently show up and welcome with open arms isn't something that I think sellers should take lightly. Um, but it is something that is consistently impressive to me. I mean, when you look at the, uh, the, the chronology here and, we, you know, the horrific discovery, of course, of the unmarked graves, in Kamloops and, and subsequent other discoveries in other parts of the country. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Declaration of National Truth and Reconciliation Day on September 30th. There, there seemed to be, and I think you and I talked about that at the time, a sense of momentum that maybe it's going to be different this time. Maybe this is the, the, the thing that's actually going to turn the tide and we're going to get the, the action from the government. Uh, and then, of course, September 30th came along and we know about the, the Prime Minister's holiday instead of actually showing up uh, in Kamloops for that. How much of a setback was that? It's hard to say. Um, what we saw was the um, Kukpi Kazimir really stay welcoming. And as I said, that welcome and that openness to work together has been consistent through even the worst time. And so I don't know that that goodwill and that willingness to really sit down in a constructive way is going to go away from Indigenous communities. At the same time, we did talk about this. Over the summer, we saw a number of children's graves um, come to light. We saw all kinds of new information come to light about the residential school system. And then we had a federal election where, honestly, this wasn't discussed much at all and certainly was something that the federal government, the current liberal government, really wanted to avoid. And this is at a time when we're seeing more and more interest from ordinary settlers, individual Canadians, um, more and more willingness and openness to really push for some change. And it's hard to say just how much of a setback it is, but it is pretty easy to say that there doesn't really seem to be that willingness and that reciprocity coming from the government right now. I mean, over the years, we've seen... Well, there are radical elements in, in, in just about any movement, and especially with what's gone on here, the frustration that's been felt for generations and generations in the Indigenous community. And we've seen some of them respond in, in what some people would consider to be a radical way, land takeovers, rail blockades, things of this nature. And those those make headlines, of course, when they happen. But when you've got a group of people like yesterday in Kamloops that are basically holding out an olive branch uh, to the government and saying, look, at we're, you, we're hurt, 
We've been hurt for hundreds of years. Uh, what you did on September 30th, it hurt even more. But we're willing to talk and to try to find some resolution. Uh, it would behoove the government to say, this is the path we need to take, and these are the people we need to talk to. Yeah, a government that's serious about doing some work and really working on reconciliation would take that opportunity. I, I do want to maybe jump back to this uh the issue of radicalism for a sec, though, Sure, because... sure. We've got a couple of Yeah, we've got about a minute left. All right, I'll be quick. Because I'm thinking especially about Six Nations and Lineback Lane, and maybe that's what you're referring to. That particular situation and, and any of these situations only really comes up after generations of land being stolen. And so those reoccupations are not a kind of immediate response or even a response necessarily made in anger. They're thought out, they're planned out, and they are a response to the government's actions. And we know that, especially in the case of Six Nations, because the government is terrified of a lawsuit that has been going on to actually reclaim those lands. And the government themselves are saying they're likely to lose that in court. And so these really only happen when Indigenous communities don't feel like there's any other recourse. And so you're right, it would behoove the government to take that opportunity when it's offered. So much more to talk about on this, uh, Liam. Always <laughs> a pleasure is. to have you on the program. Thank you so much for this. Uh, this is a, a, a series of conversations you and I are going to have on this, but we really appreciate you jumping on today. Thanks so much, Bill. I'm looking forward to it. Take care. Liam, Ms. Dane Gobin, of course, a settler scholar and assistant professor in political science at Brock University, uh, majoring, of course, in Indigenous issues. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news. It looks as if uh, we're one step closer to a children's vaccine here in Canada. Drug company Pfizer has officially applied for Canadian authorization to give their COVID-19 vaccine to children ages 5 to 11. Global's Dave Woodard has details. Health Canada will now go through the results of a trial done on thousands of child volunteers before giving the go-ahead. Pfizer actually submitted the numbers earlier this month, so the government body already has an idea of what to expect. If approved, it will provide protection for kids under the age of 12 in school environments that are still seemingly struggling with COVID. It's not clear when a decision could be made by Health Canada, but officials told reporters earlier this month that it was waiting for the application. Dave Woodard, Global News. So what are the implications of this? Well, we're so pleased to welcome uh, Dr. Jim Kellner to the program to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Kellner is a pediatrician and infectious disease specialist and vaccine researcher at both the Alberta Children's Hospital and University of Calgary. He's also a member, by the way, of the Federal COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time this morning. Oh, thank you, Bill. Uh, I want you to address maybe something, and I know we've heard these rumors all the time, but some people who are hesitant about this and maybe now hesitant to give the children vaccines, uh, is that, well, they're rushing this. This is this is something that just kind of pulled out of the air, and it's, you know, it takes years and years to develop this. Uh, could you could you please address that? Because, I mean, we, we know uh, from some of the discussions we've had uh, in the past that, uh, I mean, the development of these vaccines probably started back in the days of SARS back uh, a number of years ago. And, and and this is really variations on the same theme of work that's been going on for a number of years, isn't it? Well, you're exactly right, Bill, that, um, you know, it's been years or decades of work to uh, pre- prepare for the development of the vaccines that we're seeing used today, and in particular, the mRNA vaccines, the, the Pfizer and the Moderna that Canadians are so familiar with. Um, the technology uh, for those vaccines has been worked on for decades, literally. So, And the other thing that's important is that, you know, now in the autumn of 2021, across the globe, over six and a half billion doses of one or another COVID vaccine has, have been administered to humans. 
and over a billion doses of the mRNA vaccines have been given. So, um, and most of those doses of the mRNA vaccines have been given in places where we keep pretty close eye on the um, uh, um, any kind of adverse effects or untoward effects that can occur, and as well as to look at the benefits of the vaccines. So we've compressed what would normally be, you know, many years of vaccine use into a short time. So compress the development of the vaccine um, at the end to a short time, but also have got a lot of experience in just over, um, you know, less than a year of using the vaccine. So we have a good idea what to expect from the, both the benefit and, and safety of these vaccines. Let's talk about the impact this is going to have on us uh, from a societal standpoint, if we could, Doctor. Uh, the, the reading I've seen on this, about 10% of Canadian population are between the ages of 5 and 14. Uh, if they get vaccinated, the majority of them, what would that do to our, our attempts towards herd immunity? Well, I think that um, it's um, a really important part of the overall approach, which is to say that we need to vaccinate as many Canadians as possible. And if you if you don't include children, you know, and if you go all the way up to, you know, uh, 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 15, which was the um, original concern about, you know, under 16, you know, that's 20% of the population and that 5 to 11, that's we're still not the under 5. So there's a big chunk of the population that if you left them unvaccinated, it seems implausible when we look at how um, vaccine uptake has sort of leveled off, uh, where it's leveling off. Um, it seems implausible that we would ever get enough people vaccinated if we didn't include children. That's that's <clears throat> that's one thing. Um, the, the other thing about vaccinating children is that uh, if you look at the fourth wave, and you know, in my own province of Alberta, where the fourth wave has been particularly brutal, fortunately we're sort of over the crest of it, the highest infection rates have been in children um, from 6 to 11 years of age, uh, children in um, you know, kindergarten and elementary school. And then the second highest has been in, in children and adolescents under 20. And, and this is no surprise because as we've opened the schools rightly all across Canada and, and aim to keep them open rightly, um, you're going to get, even if most of the cases are mild, you're going to get a lot more cases that can be spread uh, throughout the population. And so if we're not vaccinating children at this time, um, we're, we're missing a chance to um, really try to get to a place where we're controlling the number of infections in the community on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I, I know some people are thinking, well, come on, kids aren't affected by this, but we know that, especially with the the Delta variant, it has had an impact, not necessarily in fatalities, but uh, we, we are hearing stories about, you know, outbreaks in school. We had one school in the Hamilton area that was closed down last week uh, simply because of an outbreak. So it's, it's still there and still very much a, a, a concern, I would think, Doctor. Yes, and so... You know, we've come to understand with the Delta uh, that uh, it is definitely, I mean, we've known for months and months that it's much more contagious, but uh, coming to understand, um, including some excellent um, information from Ontario, that, you know, you are more likely to end up in hospital if you've um, had the uh, Delta infection, twice as likely as with the previous um, uh, strain, uh, predominant strains of COVID. And this is coming down to children as well. And certainly what we're seeing in children is that for sure, children are less likely to be admitted to hospital and end up in an intensive care unit and really far less likely to, to die from COVID-19. But um, they're not, you know, they still are at risk. And a child who ends up in hospital in Canada um, has uh, about one, one in five to one in four children who end up in hospital will end up in an intensive care unit. So they'll get sick. So for sure, only about one-eighth or one-ninth is likely to get into hospital as an adult if you have COVID-19 infection. But once in hospital, you can have a severe course of it and um, fortunately, really rare to, to die. But 
you know, a severe course potentially and the lingering effects of it. So I think we can't be too quick to dismiss as completely irrelevant um, the clinical impact of COVID on children uh, um, and especially some children at particularly high risk of getting more severe disease. One of the things, I guess, I don't want to call it an advantage of, of the pandemic, but we seem to be learning from other jurisdictions that may be a little ahead of us in the development and treatment of this. And, and the UK, I think, is one of those cases. Uh, and a recent British study found that about 4% of young children and teens that had COVID continue to experience symptoms months after they've been affected. So in other words, we're having children that are having this long haul effect now too. Yeah. And so this is a thing we're just, you know, sort of coming to understand. Um, and, you know, one of the concerns about long haul or long COVID that people have is that you don't necessarily have to have had a very significant acute COVID infection. You know, you, you, one might tend to think that the, the long COVID or long haul will occur mostly in people who've had really severe initial course, but that. Is, is not the case for sure in adults, and it also doesn't seem to be the case in children. Now, I don't want to imply that you can have a, a, a minimal or asymptomatic course of COVID as a child and then go on to get long haul. That's probably not happening that often, um, but certainly, you know, and, and some people would look at that 4% and say, oh, that's a small number. But if you look at the kind of numbers of people for, for exposing so much of the population to COVID, um, the, the absolute numbers add up after a while if you have um, you know, four percent of children who get an infection is really very common. Having longer symptoms, that can be um, the kind of thing to keep you out of school, keep uh, disrupt family life, and uh, um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's it's a significant magnitude to consider. And so, we need to consider all the outcomes of COVID as uh, that can affect children, not just whether they get acutely very sick or not. This is a, a different process for kids, and we were told that right from the get-go. Uh, and, and the trial that we're told here, Doctor, was what they call a bridging trial. In other words, not as many participants as there were for the adult trials on this. Uh, maybe you could explain to our listeners what that is and, and, and whether or not you're comfortable with that. Sure. So a bridging trial is um, a, a way of testing a new vaccine that has it's, it's a, an approach that has been used for decades where um, as a new vaccine is developed, you, you test it initially in one predominant population. And in the case of COVID vaccines, that was um, adults because that was the group, age group that was most affected, and so rightly so. And so you had these very large clinical trials, 30 to 40,000 people. Half the people in the trial got the vaccine, half didn't, and you, you compare and see how safe is the vaccine, what is the immune response through measurements in the blood, and what is the clinical benefit in terms of cases prevented. In a bridging trial, you can you, you test the, the vaccine in a smaller number of people. You're still looking for safety, and you're still looking for the immune response in the blood. And if you have a similar safety profile, and if the immune response in the blood is comparable to what it is in that different population, in this case, uh, um, uh, older, um, older persons, young adults, is the comparison that was made here, um, then the bridging comes to say, well, if you have that similar kind of response there, then we can bridge and expect that the vaccine will be just as effective to prevent infections. And that's the bridging. And that's been used a lot. And um, so that um, we, uh, with the trials that were done with several thousand children, um, we don't have all the details yet sort of publicly available to look at, but it certainly looks like um, the safety profile based on small numbers, relatively small numbers, was, was uh, equivalent to the, without knowing a lot of details, was equivalent to uh, older uh, adolescents and young adults, and that the immune response 
with a lower dose, and come back to that if you want, but with a lower dose of the vaccine, the immune response was just as good. And so it's on the basis of that that this bridging is made. The concern you could have is to say, you know, our biggest concern, of course, with the pediatric vaccines that many people have heard of is this, is this uh, very rare uh, concern about the development of inflammation of the heart muscle, uh, myocarditis or inflammation of the lining of the heart, pericarditis, which occurs um, in children somewhere on the order of one in 50,000, more or less, children who have been vaccinated. And um, so there haven't been enough people tested in the clinical trials to sort of know about the risk of a very rare adverse effect like that. So we'll know about a lot of things to do with safety and, and rare effects, but we won't have such a good idea of the very, very rare side effects like this, this myocarditis from, from the trials. And it won't be till the vaccine is given to lots and lots of children that you'll have a sense of that. Uh- this is not just the adult vaccine with a smaller dose. My understanding is that the vaccine itself has been tweaked a little bit. Right. And so that's my understanding as well. And, you know, we have to see the details of that. Uh-huh. The, the actual mRNA, um, which is the active ingredient, um, uh, that my understanding is that hasn't been altered at all. There's the other ingredients of the vaccine um, that's what's in the vial, the small amount of volume that's in the vial. It's a pretty simple vaccine. It contains some some uh, lipids um, uh, that are um, surround the um, mRNA in a little um, globular or so-called nanoparticle. And then it contains really just some salt and water and sugar. And so those ingredients are pretty basic, the salt and water and sugar, you know, pretty straightforward, the salt and water and sugar. So when they say that the formulation has been altered, I don't know if that means that the there may be, have been some alteration of the, the lipid um, part of it, and you know that, that will all be revealed. We just don't have that information yet. The mRNA is, as I understand, exactly the same. It's just a different dose, one-third of the dose uh, that was used in the adult, um, uh, that is being used in the adult version of the vaccine. And I know that the hope with that is that giving a smaller dose, which looks to be just as good at triggering the immune response. There has been numbers on that that have come out and it looks just as good. Um, I, I think the hope is that that may be, uh, lead to um, fewer adverse effects. More to come on this, but very exciting news. And uh, as you mentioned, still some work to do. I know your time is tight, Doctor. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning. I really do appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Take care. Dr. Jim Kellner from uh, uh, University of Calgary, who is also a member of the Federal COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, talking about the children's vaccine, which uh, is moving along quite nicely. And Pfizer are now asking for uh, Health Canada blessings uh, to start uh, distribution on that. So probably we're assuming maybe close to the end of the year, but we might have some better news on that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Premier himself put his foot in it again yesterday. There were calls this morning for the Premier to apologize for an off-the-cuff comment that he made yesterday about immigrants. Global's Tina Trajani has the details. If you have some hard-working people, I just have one criteria. You come here like every other new Canadian has come here, you work your tail off. If you think you're coming to collect the dole and sit around, not going to happen. Go somewhere else. That's Premier Doug Ford while talking about a worker shortage in Ontario, primarily seen in the trades and construction. Both opposition leaders took to Twitter last night to express their take on Ford's conduct. The NDP's Andrea Horvath said he chose to traffic in demeaning stereotypes about new Ontarians who are looking to build a better life. And Liberal leaders 
Stephen Del Duca, called uh, the divisive okay. language deeply disappointing. Both are pushing for Ford to step forward and apologize. Ford's comment also drew the ire of Mohamed Faki, an immigrant himself who, amongst other things, built his own business and has been active in philanthropy and community service. On Twitter, he says the Premier of Ontario being ridiculous and insulting, showing his true colours, again proving why he should not be Premier. Tina Trajani, Global News. Uh, thank you for that report, Tina. Uh, the aforementioned Mohammed Faki now joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Mohammed is the uh, owner and founder of Paramount Fine Foods. Uh, Mohammed, first of all, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, I, I got to ask you right up front, when I, I saw this story yesterday, and we, we knew that he was going to be making an announcement about a new hospital. That's a good news story, quote unquote, for the government and, you know, the ribbon cutting and the photo op, etc. And then I saw this quote and I thought, where did that come from? Were, were you surprised? I was very surprised. I'm shocked. It's very insulting. I don't understand how he went to do something great for Windsor and he turned to make what he called the new Canadians. Like, people keep asking, what is the problem? Well, if you don't know what is the problem, I think we, should, we will not be able to explain it to you. <laughs> like, really. I mean, uh, when he said the word the new Canadians, like, who is he talking about? He's not talking about the people that were born here. He's talking about the people that came here. And when he said, go somewhere else, is he saying, go back to your country comment that we hear uh, from people that we do not accept those comments of Trump and we do not believe in them? Look, this is the exact, he is the stereotype here because he is the exact person that makes a comment, acts like he didn't understand it, and wonder if it was racist comment. Everyone else understands that it's racist, but he's the only person who acts like he doesn't know it. Like, let's be clear. I mean, there is a famous line from Maya Angelou here. When people show who they are, believe them. So Blackboard has shown who he is, someone who falls back on a racist stereotype, right? He assumes the worst of those who don't look like him because he's the reality. And everyone can see this all around them every single day. You don't have to look far. In big city and a small town across Ontario, newcomers work so hard to make a new life for themselves and their families. When we brought the Syrian refugee to Canada, all of us together, today I can report as someone that works with UNHCR that over 55% of them have opened business and hired Canadians. So new Canadians are the ones who do a lot of the heavy lifting in our society and lower level pay jobs, sometimes in jobs that others won't even accept to do. And I thought we all, after the pandemic, start understanding and appreciating that. But clearly our premier is obliged to it and doesn't care, or doesn't care, at least. I mean, the first question, had I been there, and had the media been allowed to ask questions, is, is, is are you asserting here that, that immigrants are a problem here, that they're a financial drain on the province? Is that what he's trying to tell us? Well, I mean, and I don't know. Well, again, look, I mean, <laughs> that. The record of Blackford so far that he doesn't believe in science or data. Clearly, he cannot give us data how he he can assert something like this, uh, you know. And it's been it's been an obvious year or two years for Blackford, right? He can't get it right. He's blind to what was happening to the senior in LTC, and thousand died. He's unconcerned about the devastation of the small business, yet he supports the big boxes stores. He's unable even to spend all the money that the federal government sent to Ontario to make our schools safer. Maybe Doug Ford is missing the point. Doug Ford is missing the point where maybe people are afraid to come to work because he failed us as well on the basically where people can stay home if they're not feeling safe to come to work. Does he have any data showing that immigrants or newcomers or new Canadians 
are not one of the biggest support to our economy. He doesn't, because I can show you, I have a lot of data from UNHCR saying the opposite. But beyond the point, for a premier to be trying, the truth is he's very close to an election, and he's trying to resonate to his, to his base. And by using immigrants and new Canadians to try to get more votes, the kind of vote that he's looking for. And this is unacceptable. This is divisive. The premier does not represent people like me who came to this country and very proud to be Canadian and very appreciative to what Canada did to them. And they have worked their, their life to make a, Canada a better place and their life a better, better life for them and for their children. But it's unacceptable. He does not represent me as a premier, and that's why he should not run for a premier again. Well, I, I just found it incredulous that he would even make such a comment because, of, I, I mean, we've talked for, for many, many years on this program about the work ethic, about people who came over here virtually with nothing, sometimes just with the shirt on their back, uh, and have made something of themselves and have created businesses and created jobs. And uh, I, I, I'd really like the Premier to, to clarify this and say, just who are you talking about? Show me some examples of this. And I, 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 we're just about out of time here. i got about a minute left here. Would an apology make this go away, Mohammed? Well, an apology is only a start. Uh, the premier needs to finally ask some answer some question, and he usually doesn't. And we need the answer of this question in detail. Who was he exactly talking about? And why did it come out of his mouth so smoothly? Because is that how he feels? For something like this to come out of a, premier, a premier's mouth, he has to have believed in this because it will never come out of, of my mouth or your mouth because our hearts won't allow it. It came out of his mouth smoothly, an apology only a start. And he should rethink the fact that if he wants to run for a premier ever, he needs to be a premier for all Canadians and appreciate the hardworking Canadian and not divide us between Canadian and new Canadians. Mohammed, thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate you taking some time for us. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you very much for all that you Take do. Take care. Thank Mohammed you. Faki, who is the owner and founder of Paramount Fine Foods, uh, among many people who were just shocked and, and outraged by the comments from the Premier yesterday. Of course, opposition leaders are calling for an apology. Uh, don't know if one is going to be forthcoming or not, but we'll certainly keep an eye on what's happening at Queen's Park. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.